welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. We're joined today by Harris Marks, just to talk about all kinds of things. Uh, welcome to the cast, Paris. Thanks for coming along. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So yeah, for, uh, you're over in Canada. You've been kind of working in the space in a and the tech space. I think to a large extent is where a lot of your uh, work. Do you do you call it journalism, content creation? What's the the term in this day and age? Yeah, I would say writing. Maybe I, <laughs> I, I think I usually use uh, opinion writing. Like I don't know. I, I think journalism technically like applies, but I don't generally use that term because I feel like, you know, I'm not actually, I'm not usually like contacting sources and things like that. So I feel like saying I'm a journalist is a bit uh, of a misrepresentation of what I do. So I would say I more so like give opinions on things that are happening and and provide analysis and things like that. Um, yeah. So I feel like journalist is probably not the right one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we, we often, um, Feel like we don't have the rigor uh, that a, a journalist might. What? Speak for yourself, Carl. <laughs> Bronco does. Bronco brings that that level of respectability. Uh, that's to, why we. To the that's why we. Why we tolerate him? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he couldn't make it today, um, but uh, so we're just going to have to um, deal with being uh, opinioners this morning. Opinionistas. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like so that. You, yeah. you you cover kind of global tech stuff. And, and one of your more recent uh, pieces was about uh, some of the RoboDebt stuff in Australia. How do you decide kind of what, you, what you're going to be covering? And yeah, where what takes you where? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so RoboDebt is something that I've been following for a number of years, um, just like as a personal interest kind of thing. I haven't written about it or anything like that. But I always wanted to do a podcast episode on it because I also host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. Um, and so it finally reached the point where, you know, I just happened to read an article by uh, Dakshayini Surya Kumaran. And, it, you know, I thought it laid out really well, like not just what RoboDebt was and what the issue with it was, but also how it's kind of like indicative of this broader way that technology is being used in the social welfare system, at the border, in so many other kind of, you know, government programs or agencies that is really concerning because of how it targets the poor people on welfare, things like that, migrants, et cetera. Right. And so, yeah, it just finally reached the point where I, I found someone who I wanted to talk to and I had like an opening on the schedule, you know, not that there haven't been other people who have had really interesting and good things to say about um, RoboDebt. It just happened to come along at the right time where, <laughs> you know, I had an opening in the schedule. Right. And so, you know, in terms of choosing topics to cover and things like that, it, it really varies because there are some times when I really want to address a particular issue or I'll do like a series on um, a topic in particular that I really want to dig into and explore. And there are other times where, you know, like a news event will just come up or I'll read a piece that I find really interesting and I'll say, okay, I want to talk to this person, right? Um, just to expand on it a little bit further. And, you know, I have like, when I, when I started the podcast, I had probably a, a list of about 50 people who I thought like, I would like to have these people on the show at some point. And now after more than a year of doing the podcast, that guest is probably, that list is probably still around like 60 or 70 people <laughs> to it. Yeah. Even as I've, you know, talked to so many more people. So yeah, that's kind of how it works out at least like on the podcast side of things. Um, and, you know, obviously writing is, is a bit different than that. <laughs> 
yeah a yeah small that's, amount right that's how it works though right with podcasting your your list of wanted guests grows ever longer the more the more guests you have your task list just increases <laughs> over time yeah absolutely it's, it's ridiculous yeah um so why won't tech save us paris explain explain that to us <laughs> um well, I think that there's generally this narrative around technology that like all we need is to improve technology, to have better technology, to integrate technology into our lives in more ways. And that will solve, you know, all of these various problems that we're dealing with, whether it's in transportation, whether it's in, you know, the social welfare system, as I was just saying, or so many more areas. And I think so often what that kind of approach misses is that just focusing on technology and technological solutions misses the politics that is behind that, right? Yeah. And the politics that have created those problems in the first place. And so if we only focus on technology as the solution to the problem, we're missing how that problem was created in the first place and how by just you know adding a layer of technology on top, we're not actually solving the problem because we haven't addressed like the structural and political issues that created that problem in the first place. So that is why I would say tech won't save us. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good elevator, uh, elevator opinion, opinionism, I suppose. Elevator opinion. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I guess um, on, a, on a mini tangent to that, having worked in the public service, so much of the purpose behind using tech um, or, or the, the reasons um, that organizations choose to use tech are, are driven by what I call the neoliberal imperative, right? Like, how are we going to cut costs? How are we going to do this faster? How are we going to get our money? And when you're applying any tool, it doesn't matter if it's tech, uh, a tech intervention or something else, if those are the reasons that you're going to use it, it's going to drive the outcomes. And yeah. I, I guess a... An occurrence like RoboDebt is a perfect example of that. But there's any other number of like, um, you know, I think in, in New Zealand we had some discussion around social welfare and using uh, algorithms, whatever those, uh, whatever they meant by that at the time, uh, to decide um, who got what or where money could be put um, most effectively. But what you're using those algorithms for or what, those, um, what outcomes those are driving is all in the background somewhere. It, there's no visibility of, of what's doing. And if it's coming from a, a structure or system that has been built, as you say, around a particular political model, then, yeah, it's not going to change anything um, on a structural level. Absolutely. And, you know, there, like, it just brings to mind how there was a report recently in MIT Tech Review, and it was kind of reviewing a number of studies on these kind of um, new technological systems that were created for COVID-19, right? These, um, you know, these contact tracing apps and various AI solutions for hospitals and things like that. And basically found that so many of these technologies were effectively useless at helping deal with the virus, or if not, in some cases, they were actually more harmful um, because of you know, how it took attention away from things that really mattered. And I think what we saw, especially in the contact tracing space, is that where contact tracing was effective was when you actually had like human contact tracers who were going through the contacts and contacting people and checking up on things. Like the apps were very ineffective for that tool, but they received so much attention as like, this is the way that we are going to figure out like where the cases are and how we're going to deal with it. And right. And so I think it's just one like small example of a, a much larger trend 
where we look to the technology instead of you know what is actually going to work. And often the thing that is actually going to work that is going to deal with the problem is like a human solution, right? And not to mention like the political solutions and things that need to go into um, putting that human solution in place. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone's after a shortcut, right? We want, we want to amplify the solution to something instead of actually acknowledging that sometimes things can be a bit more difficult than that. Like in, in terms of that uh, COVID track and trace kind of conversation, obviously that gets into quite significant like privacy issues and civil liberties issues. Um, in New Zealand, we had a conversation when it was getting wound up. Um, I think we had a pretty good, our app in New Zealand, from from what I've read about it, is one of the better ones in terms of keeping privacy pretty well secured and independent from various organizations and et cetera. Um, they could do more in terms of ensuring that that's the case and legislating for that. But I think just on an evidential so far level, it looks like we're pretty good. Um, but so far, we've seen a few examples like in Australia and Singapore, I think, where the cops have been receiving information. So that's obviously problematic to say the least because that's a disincentive to use it apart from ethically obviously horrendous like does your does your work intersect much with the kind of the privacy space because that comes up a lot obviously with comms tech work yeah um privacy is just is definitely an issue um that you run into a lot in tech and i would say it's not so much my focus like there are a lot of people who are obviously dealing with that i think my focus is more on the political side of things and that's not to say that you know discussions about privacy are not political but i think that that is usually like a a certain way of entering the tech discussion and i think that a lot of those discussions are important but generally i would say the things that i focus on are not so much um related to privacy or you know might be adjacent to privacy but i feel like privacy is usually not like the aspect of technology that I'm focusing most on um, when I discuss it and critique it and things like that. Yeah. It's more of like a solutionism. Yeah. You know, and I would say that part of my focus is also more on like the political economy of technology um, rather than that privacy aspect of it. So like, you know, some of the things that I've been focusing a lot on a lot recently um, are like how tech companies have been, um, you know, working in the transportation space. So things like Uber and things like that, how that's affecting transportation, what's coming of it. Um, also, you know, the the rise of streaming services, what that is doing to like the film and television industry, you know, the, the rise of like smart city technologies and things like that, how that's affecting urban governance and what's happening in cities. So I would say that is more of like my focus. And obviously privacy comes up sometimes, like especially mm. when you're talking about smart cities and things like that. But I would say like, it's just not my primary focus when I'm going into these discussions. I think one of the really interesting things about a, a range of the technologies and kind of business business opportunities uh, that you mentioned there was they all include the idea of, of private information or personal information as a commodity, right? Um, so it, is it for Uber building transport connections? Is that what their business model is? No, it's, it's about building... Um, networks of, of private data um, and the way that people move across the city, um, similar for smart cities or any other range of stuff. And as long as that personal information is a commodity, there'll always be a privacy issue uh, kind of adjacent uh, to whatever any of these businesses are doing without it necessarily being, being the main focus of them, I think. Absolutely. You know, I think with a lot of those technologies, especially when 
you know, you're using an app where it involves sensors, like being placed in a physical location, as you would often see in smart city implementations, you are dealing with this degree of commodification, right? You're, you're, you're seeing an attempt to commodify things that haven't previously been commodified in many ways. So, you know, you're looking at Uber, you had taxi services previously, but you didn't have the data that was coming as, you know, you were tracking where everyone was going in the city. And then Uber claims that that is proprietary information and it can't share it with cities, right? Because that is like an important part of its business. Um, and, and, you know, you have similar things with the smart city technologies where you'll have like Google, you know, putting these sensors in cities, these Wi-Fi um, towers in New York City. Um, but you also have like IBM, Cisco, all these like developing these smart city technologies. And certainly data is part of that. But also, you know, I think there's also this kind of orientation toward solving these issues, solving the issue of congestion in transportation, solving the issue of planning for all these urban systems. And the idea is that it can be done better if we have more algorithms and, and you know, it's more computerized and everything is tracked more efficiently. Um, and, you know, I think that that is more of an open question or at least like how those technologies are used and whether the way that we are being told that they should use by these companies who have a particular business objective in how they are implemented, like whether they are really thinking about the way that these technologies really serve our public goals or whether they're more focused on like the business objectives and how they make money off of it. Right. And I wonder I which one it could be. Yeah. And <laughs> I think we know that, but I think we know that like they're not aligned. Right. I think that there's often an assumption that like, you know, you just put the technology in and naturally that is there, like, there's one way to develop technology. It's a linear kind of process. And so if we, are creating this particular technology, this is going to help us. And, oh, it's also going to create a profit for this company as well. And I would kind of push back on that and say that there are many different ways that technology can be developed, many routes that that development can take. And right now it is being guided by a particular development, by a particular mode of development of, of you know, like capitalist tech development that is looking at a particular objective, right? And often that objective or always that objective is about serving the profitability and the power of these corporations, not necessarily to help the public. Sometimes there might be something that help the, helps the public that comes out of it. But I think, you know, so often, like we can dig into it further if you want, but so often I think when you look at these technologies, when you look at so many of the ways that the technologies we, re we rely on today are implemented, we can see that it's like about serving these corporate ends and not about serving the public. That brings us, um, I think, quite well to one of the vanish that I want to talk about today, um, which is is left media or, or critical media and the role that it plays in trying to unpack some of this stuff. Because one of the major issues, um, you know, with public knowledge about the Ubers or the Googles or you know, the IBMs is that a lot of the media app apparatus is aligned with those, um, if not actually the same organization um, as, as those business interests. And it feels to me, and maybe to you as well, hopefully, um, that it's only really left media, or at least, yeah, I, I'm not sure about the term left media. Um, I, I think what, I think what Carl's towards critical media. Right? What Carl's trying to say is that democracy dies in darkness. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I guess the role that um, either content creators or op opinion writers. Um, or, or left-wing 
critical um, journalists play in trying to get this information to the public? Yeah, I, I think it's a big question. And, you know, obviously my kind of focus on that has been more on the tech side of things, you know, how it works within broader issues, I think we could talk about as well. But I think that if you're thinking about technology and the role that, you know, critical media would play in that, I think that we can really see that there was a shift around 2016. Before that, um, you know, it was much more common for whether it's mainstream media, tech verticals and, and tech publications more generally. Um, and, you know, the more the more niche tech publications, not just the ones that are part of the mainstream media verticals, would be very uncritical in the sense that, you know, it, it was almost like they were invested in seeing these technologies and these companies do well, right? And, and that was how their reporting and their, you know, articles were framed. They wanted to get in with the people who are in tech. They wanted to have those good relationships. Um, and they also wanted the lifestyle that technology was selling. Like if you look at the gig economy, the growth of the gig economy after 2008, that was often reported in a very uncritical way, a very kind of enthusiastic way, because the kind of people who are doing that reporting are also the people who are kind of at the level where they are taking advantage of these services and not as often the kind of people who would be um, like working through the apps, right? And so you get a very particular kind of perspective on that. And then that's the perspective that is communicated to the wider public. I guess we don't really think about it in terms of other uh, areas or industries, but access journalism exists everywhere, right? It's not just in terms of like, oh, I go and talk to my local politician and I, I'm mates with them. It can be for any given industry, as long as the industry wants to foment that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we see it in political reporting all the time. <laughs> I'm sure in New Zealand, the same as in Canada, the same as in the States. And, you know, the, there's not so much of that kind of critical element toward politics that you would see in like the mainstream publications, cable channels, things like that, right? That that I think most people would hope is there, but is often not there. But if we're thinking about tech in particular, there was a shift around 2016 with, you know, Brexit and the election of Trump, where there was a more critical kind of take on technology, because there was the, the perception that, you know, Facebook was um, involved in helping these negative things happen, these, these things that are perceived as negative by the kind of people who shape the kind of broader opinions, right? And that's not saying that I like endorse the election of Donald Trump. Right? <laughs> you know, just let's be clear. So we're cutting um, that bit out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny but, because um, it, it's just the kind of ongoing like soft power or lobbying, right? And it just reminded me that uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk uh, exec produced "Thank You for Smoking" in two thousand and what fifteen or something. That how amazing how like a propo is that right as a yeah. as an explanation of like here's this kind of black uh, satirical piece about actually lobbying is bad like did you know that people don't always tell you the truth etc and what a decade coming on a decade later look what happened i mean that's just how industry functions right they need to funnel soft power kind of pr upwards so of course we have you know elon musk is iron man now uh high-fiving whatever and he's <laughs> the guy who's going to save us all with enormous renewable energy for all uh, and we've got, you know, Bill Gates, the philanthropist who's too incompetent to achieve his goal of getting poorer every year. Like he just somehow can't do it. It's impossible. And in New Zealand recently, we've had Larry Page, the billionaire Google 
co-founders being approved residency. That's just recently been kind of a mini scandal, but no one's going to care because we did that for Peter Thiel years ago as well. We, we love we love welcoming the billionaires and taking their residencies for money. We've so got the Steam yeah. guy here as well, right, at the moment. Um, mm. So Gabe Newell. We love, we love tech billionaires down here. And meanwhile, they're all out measuring dicks in space, right? So there's this like weird individualization of the news narrative around it. Do you think that becomes like a... Um, do you think that distracts from structural issues or does it bring people's attention to the actual kind of problems that these people are causing, that there, there are these kind of new slew of like tech celebrities? You know, I think on that particular question, I think it works in both ways, right? Like I think if we look at the reporting that's done on Elon Musk, I think it's often still, despite, you know, the scandals of recent years, um, I think it's still incredibly positive in general, right? Because if you if you look at polls like in the United States, a lot of people still say that they like have trust in Elon Musk, right? And so I think you see that reflected in a lot of the kind of media reporting on him. He can still say like completely wild uh, stuff about like what the future is going to look like, which is clearly false. Um, but it will get repeated as though like it's accurate and that you can believe it. Um, but I would also say that you know you could also look at someone like Jeff Bezos. Um, where, you know, I think the kind of focusing on him as an individual probably does miss structural factors, but I think also by directing that ire toward him, um, people pay more attention because, you know, it's, it's this figure that you can recognize. And so, you know, you can demonize him as the union buster, as the guy who's treating his workers like shit, as he is like traveling to space and, you know, saying thanks to the workers for paying for all this, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it works both ways. Um, I wouldn't have an answer on whether I think it's like net positive or net negative. I would just say that I think that, that is the way that like our media system works right now. And that, you know, if that is how people are relating to things, then we should at least use it like in the positive way that we can. And I, I would just say like on a broader point, I think like, you know, when you see that shift back in 2016, like there's still a lot of kind of focus on individual narrative, um, but you see more critical reporting on technology in that point after that period. But I think it's important. There have been people who've been drawing attention to this, um, particularly recently, but how there's kind of like two broad strands of criticism and, you know, that I'm sure that you could break those up in the much smaller ones as well. Um, but that is to say that there's one brand of like tech criticism that says what the specific actions of like a company like Facebook are doing are negative, but we still believe in kind of the broader idea, the broader like ideology. So like maybe Facebook is flawed or maybe something that Facebook is doing is flawed. But if we just had a new social network to replace Facebook, like, you know, a different company to rise and replace it, then that would solve the issue because they would be more ethical or whatever, right? If they had like a good um, investigation or like put a new like um, human rights specialist into the executive, um, I think it's a, a recurring theme, right? Get clap, yeah, exactly. Nazis clap, off clap, Twitter clap. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But like, so that's one strand of it. And then I think you have the other strand that I, you know, we would hope to see in more critical media, left media, things like that that are 
focusing more specifically, not just on the companies, focusing on the companies is important, but also understanding that this is structural in the sense that it's something that's built into this model and the way that like a capitalist tech industry functions um, and then the results that come out of that. Right. And so like, you know, I think Alex Press at Jacobin has been doing a really good job covering mm. Amazon um, and, you know, Ed Ongwezo Jr. at um, Motherboard, which is part of Vice, does a really great job at looking at Uber and what's going on there. And, you know, there are other people who are who are doing things like that as well. Um, but I would say that, you know, it's important to look at that because when you look at um, like mainstream publications or tech publications right now, you'll see critical stories, which is important. But sometimes I would say that those stories are kind of couched in a way where it's like this thing that Facebook is doing is bad, but the kind of model that's driving Facebook is not bad and we should still believe in it. And it's important to kind of draw that distinction. It's interesting that, yeah, you, you make the distinction because I'm thinking back to 2016, you know, when you're saying this shifted and it's around, I think the same time that it came out that Facebook had um, kind of made up a lot of the statistics around uh, moving media to video. Uh, so you had a whole bunch of big media organizations that were just like, Hey, wait a second, you messed around with us and you, you ruined our, our um, profitability. And so you suddenly had this whole bunch of uh, media generated with a very, very antagonistic towards, towards Facebook. And, and it was just because they'd been personally harmed more, more, more than anything else. It felt like it seems like, yeah, some of that's uh, trickled through, but without, as you say, much critique of why did Facebook do that in the first place? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact like year that the pivot to video stuff and like the result of that came out. Um, but obviously, like a ton of people were laid off as a result of that, um, like the fudging of the numbers, essentially on that. Right. Because a lot of um, media companies did pivot to video or were started like around the idea of, you know, being this kind of video oriented media company. And then like all of a sudden, you know, their money was gone. Right. Um and around that time too, like there were a ton of scandals facing Facebook, but other companies as well. And in the sense that, you know, it's not like we had never heard of scandals in tech companies before, but all of a sudden, like they got a lot more attention, right? Because the, the kind of mood had changed um, around these tech companies. And so there was more of a willingness to accept that there were aspects of them that were not perfect, right? And, and that we could, we could accept that. But I would say that even, even noting that, um, when you look at, at polls and things, like I think that it's shifting on, it, it has shifted on Facebook. People are generally feeling negatively toward Facebook, even though most people still use it. Um, but like a company like Amazon, which I think is like indicative of how terrible like a lot of these tech companies can be if you kind of let them go. And I would say Amazon, like obviously it's a tech company, but it's not a tech company in the way that like a Facebook or a Google is a tech company because it's also like a logistics company yeah. in a, in a, that's like its main kind of thing, even though it makes most of its money from cloud um, computing and things. But I think you get what, what I mean, but it's, it's important to kind of focus on that and to see that when it comes to Amazon, people are still very supportive of Amazon um, in the United States. When you look at the polls um, and people, even though there have been more stories around the treatment of the workers, how low the pay is, how terrible the benefits are, et cetera, et cetera. 
that in general, people still have a really high degree of trust in Amazon. Yeah. And, you know, I think in part, that's because a ton of people are prime members are paying for this kind of yearly subscription, I believe it is to Amazon. Um, and so buy a lot of stuff from them. And I think naturally, people don't like to feel that they're doing something bad, right? They don't want to feel that like by buying something from this like giant, um, that they're having a negative effect in the world or hurting workers or something like that. And so they just kind of like, you know, drown that stuff out, you know, yeah. don't pay attention to it. And and I think some of this optimist just in political conversations in general is that individual outcomes uh, to individual people matter to them. Um, so if people are using a system, they're like, hey, this is great for me. This is easy. Um, everyone's using it. Uh, it gets me my uh, back scratcher in a day um, or whatever other useless piece of or, or useful piece of uh, technology I need. Then it is just going to have a net positive based on that set of causalities, right? And, and it's the same. I think we've talked a bit on, on this podcast around um, some of the actual outcomes in the world of the, the Trump presidency, especially towards the end, he just sent out a, a check and put his name on it. You know, like that has an effect and you can't, you can't say that it, it doesn't have an effect on, on how people feel about both, both Trump individually, but you know, Trump's cabinet and government. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's deeply psychological. Eh? It's, it's really hard to disentangle the personal connection to a service provider, whether that's a, a politician or a platform or an individual or whatever from the the kind of ethical and structural viability of that platform like how how far it's, it's just so hard to explicate a supply chain to a, a clear enough detail that people start to give a shit like that's something that i think we need to like grapple with as the left in particular and particularly people who think about structures from top to bottom and bottom to top and world trade etc it is just extremely hard like there are a lot of people that you can tell the, the working conditions of people at every single level of the supply chain and say, now, is this a good or bad supply chain? And people go, it's bad. And then they'll walk home and order something off Amazon or, you know, some child labor, uh, $4 Bangladesh t-shirt or whatever. Um, and it's just like, there's a real internal kind of wall that people create in their heads, partly just to kind of self-justify, like Carl said, that's just how we operate as humans. Like we don't like to think that the way we operate on a daily basis makes the world worse, but also, like, you need to make it worse for those individuals. That's just kind of a material reality of it. It, it, it is difficult. Like, there's a reason that capitalism and this kind of uh, dislocated, like, global finance capital is so efficient. It's because it dislocates these results all around the world, right? So it's not the people who work at Amazon warehouses who have to work at Amazon warehouses for poverty wages and pee in cups or whatever, um, who are the ones voting, yes, Amazon's 100%. It's the best company ever. But also those people don't own property and they don't vote and they don't like change the material structural power in whatever county they're in or whatever. And there's that you know terrifying statistic in the States about, well, I forget the numbers now, but I was reading some Chomsky the other day uh, and it was some like top percentage of earners, their their preference has been the the like, group and power for you know forever so it's that kind of elite opinion makers which does make it interesting with it's like the entire kind of internal cleavage that you're talking about where you know the brexits and the trumps go oh hang on that's not what was meant to happen maybe something is uh is wrong on a kind of uh 
physical, like technological level. Because again, that's kind of externalizing blame, right? Like you were saying, Paris, there's this um, interesting kind of need to, it's almost a teleology, right? They want to create like a start and a finish and go, this is the direction that technology is going in. It's Everything's getting better. It's almost a religious kind of uh, revelations of technology. Whereas when something goes wrong, they go, oh, hang on. Maybe it's this individual thing that's wrong. It's not, it's not that there's actually been quite a strong strain of uh, poisonous, toxic shit getting worse for 100 years. It's that this one time, you know, someone done a, a Cambridge Analytica and now I'm uncomfortable. Like that's, that's the problem right now. It's fascinating, eh? It is fascinating. And, you know, I think, I think what you're saying there, what you're both saying there brings two things to mind. First of all, you know, I think it's quite clear that, you know, what you're describing and, and what we're talking about shows that there's no kind of individual solution to this, right? It has to be a structural solution. Like you're not going to rely on all of these individual consumers to realize that like, oh, maybe this is like an unethical consumption practice and I should like change the way I consume, right? That's not going to be like, that's not going to like change things structurally. There needs to be like a government response that is going to actually change things in, in my view. And I think it's interesting to see how, you know, obviously the tech industry is one of those key industries now that is driving a lot of capitalist growth, a lot of profit accumulation, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, to make the New Zealand connection, we have the, the government now, obviously Amazon is, is filming uh, the Lord of the Rings down or, or whatever their show is going to be called down, <laughs> down there again. Um, <laughs> but there was this report in stuff like a few months ago, right, where they were saying that Amazon is getting a ton of subsidies for filming the show down there, you know, that many companies receive, but it was able to like, you know, get the bonus amount of subsidies that is only for like certain productions. Um, and that report was describing how there was a particular desire on the part of the New Zealand government, not just to form this relationship with Amazon studios, which is, you know, that's, it's kind of film and television branch, but to make those connections with the broader Amazon corporation to, you know, start getting Amazon to invest and do things in New Zealand so it can benefit from that growth. And it's like, is this the kind of corporation that you would actually want to be dealing with, with the kind of ways that it treats its workers, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, because of the way that the economy works because of the way that a company like Amazon in particular is driving um, the economy right now, not just in the United States, but globally, you know, you kind of need to form these connections um, if you want to keep up in like the GDP growth race and all this, so all this sort of stuff. Right. And on your point about technology and like the, the idea of, technology moving forward in this kind of linear fashion, like I was talking about, and how when something goes wrong, it's like the problem is not, you know, the broader mode through which we're developing technology, but it's like this one kind of individual um, issue. I think I've been thinking a lot recently about kind of the history of the development of these technologies. And like, even going back to the growth of the internet, like the, the original years that where the internet was privatized in the nineties and then, you know, started to expand and all this sort of stuff and how there were these narratives about how the internet was like this kind of 
utopian place where we were all going to be free. And like, it was this place that was free from the government. And of course, you know, if New Zealand listeners are not aware, you know, a lot of people in North America wouldn't be as well, but the internet was developed with, you know, US state money. It was developed like with defense money and then was finally privatized. And the argument at privatization by like a particular strand of libertarian, you know, idealists who were interested in these technologies was that the internet was going to be this kind of libertarian paradise and that we had to keep the government out of it. We had to keep the government from regulating it, all of these sorts of things. And then what we can see several decades later is that those narratives, you know, kind of paved the way for the corporate control over the internet that we have today, because it was keep, keep the state out of there, uh, even though the state created the network in the first place before handing it over to the corporations. But there was a concern about the state and the power of the state, but there was not a concern about the corporation and the power of the corporation, because the idea was it will be this like free market where we can all compete, where we can all like do what we want, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then naturally, as we know how capitalist markets work, you know, they eventually consolidate and you have these massive monopolies like we have now. It's a classic um, dichotomy, so right? Yeah, exactly. So I think it's really interesting to like go back and examine those things, especially as we're having these debates today about like, you know, what is happening with these tech companies, what the internet has created. Um, you know, we're even having these discussions now about like what um, the future of the internet is going to look like. How do we fix some of these problems? And some people are talking about like, cryptocurrencies and things like that as being this kind of solution, right? And so when I hear the cryptocurrency discourse, I'm like, wait, we already had all these promises about the internet, you know, almost three decades ago now, I believe it would be, quick math. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but like we had these same kind of libertarian promises about what the internet was going to do all these years ago. And now, you know, we've recognized that those were false promises and that these corporations were able to take over the internet, this infrastructure, and like it very much serves their ends now, their desire for capital accumulation, et cetera, et cetera, for power, for control. Um, and so the promise is that now there's this new technology that is going to solve the problems with this old technology. And a lot of people who are like promoting this idea don't seem to make that connection, right? And seem to believe that just by introducing this new decentralized technology, we'll be able to take the power back once again. And yeah. it's like, are you seeing how that played out the last time? Like, are you understanding the power dynamics that are at play here in this capitalist economy? And like, I just don't think that's happening. How do we, you know, as whatever we are, as, as content creators of, uh, of a stripe, how do we push back on that? Because, you know, as you say, like, anyone who's been watching it understands how, how these structures have um, replicated, right? Um, and how most tech solutionism towards a proposed goal is actually being driven by other factors. And a large uh, part of that is the function uh, the wider media plays in that um, alongside, you know, a myriad of PR interests who are, who are constantly trying to feed into this either via access journalism or just by outright a social media review bombing, essentially, to drive public opinion in a certain direction. As people trying to do critical media, how do we break through the, the mainstream media and established outlets doing puff pieces on Dogecoin? 
Um, I think I would probably give two answers and I, I would preface it by saying that I think it's a difficult question because I think it's a difficult proposition, right? You know, when we're talking about critical media or left media, naturally what we're talking about is media that also has much less power much less access to resources. Oh, I don't know what you're like, talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Speak for yourself, lower... Paris. We're yeah. with millionaires Sorry. down here. <laughs> um, like a much lower, you know, listenership or readership. Like the 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 power is is on a different scale, right? And so I do think it's important that left media is, you know, obviously doing the critical work of calling attention to what's going on. But I would note that you know, there were people who were doing that work back in like the early 2010s, right? Back before there was this tech clash in 2016 and, and whatnot. And they were not given the credit for those critical opinions. Like people weren't listening to them, right? Essentially. And, and then when the shift happened and there was like a new group of people who were finally okay with critical perspectives now, a lot of those people who were making them earlier were kind of excluded from that, right? Yeah. And and there was not the connection made back to what they um, had been saying before. And so I think that you mm. always have the critics, they're always there, but it's also very easy to ignore the criticism when that is what works for, you know, capital accumulation for the power of these corporations. And so like, I think it's a difficult corporate, it's a difficult question and not one that I have a clear answer to, because I think largely what we're talking about here is that, you know, there's obviously like a capitalist system that is growing in a particular way that has particular interests in order to maintain the growth and the power that it has um, in order to ensure that these companies keep growing, in order to ensure that it can keep commodifying aspects of our lives so that it can keep growing so that it can keep having access to you know more resources it can keep getting us to consume more etc cetera, etc cetera. um you know i think that we see that more with the recent proposals for like metaverses and for non-fungible tokens it's like turning virtual assets into something that you can um, trade or buy or pay for because you know there need to be new ways to generate consumption to generate profit etc right mm -hmm. um and so, like, you know, I think it's just a way of saying that there is uh, a built-in incentive in the system to ignore the negative things that are happening and that there's just a natural drive for these things to continue, right? Um, and how do you ultimately challenge that? You know, I, I think that's a, a massive question. I think it's a question that people have been trying to answer for a really long time. Like, you know, I could do, I could say the cop out answer and say, like, you know, we need to organize, we need to build political, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously mm. that's correct. But it's like, you know, I think that's a cop out. Right. Yeah. To, yeah. It's not enough anymore. Say those right. Things. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Hey, cool. Yeah. We just need um jump to subscribe. Throw us a couple of dollars um, and, you know, that will help us hold uh, Jeff Bezos to account and, and get him on the you know, in front of the hog. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny, right? Because we're, we're talking about these like imaginary markets that are being essentially created by necessity. And the, the response to that is 10 more Patreon dollars per, uh, per month, right? So yeah, that, that we need these imaginary markets to fight different imaginary markets that exist purely in like a info realm. Not It's kind of a new, um, the new frontier of colonialism, right? It's like portioning off different parts of Terra Nullius, only this time it's 
right? cyberspace. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So think, that, um... that, that kind of um, on, on that kind of like bigger structural level, Paris, how do you feel about the growth degrowth kind of conversation that's happening now? Like some of that seems tied to some of these kind of tech ideas, especially talking about like the, you know, the necessity of the mode of production to envision and therefore like create all of these new insane, like increasingly untenable markets that have to sustain themselves only insofar as, you know, venture capital needs somewhere to go. Like the spice, the spice of venture capital must flow, right? But that kind of growth, degrowth, uh, in stop on that is I, I don't know if I want to say uh, gaining ground, but it seems like more people on the left are talking about it at least. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I would say I wouldn't define myself as like a degrowther, but I would say that I'm definitely um, like I I agree with I think a lot of what they're saying, or like the, at least the the kind of thrust behind their approach to things. I think that you know when I am examining these things when I'm paying attention to how this economy has grown in the past, how it looks to be continuing to grow, um, you know, how the capitalist system works. I just don't see how you continue to, you know, fetishize growth in this way that we have and not like send the planet off the deep end, right? Um, Especially when we have so little time to turn things around. Um, Like there was a recent book that came out based on an essay in, I think it was uh, Salvage magazine, but I might be messing that up. It's called Tragedy of the Worker. And like part of what they argue in that book is essentially that like, you know, capitalism has like so destroyed the systems of the planet that like, even if we can talk about, you know, going to space or whatever at some point in the future, that we need like a period of kind of healing and restoring like the planet and the systems that make it up, the social systems, the environmental systems, before we talk about, you know, exploiting it or, or thinking about how things grow in the future. And I would say that's not to say that, like, you know, I think as many critics of degrowth often say that, you know, we need to live like poor people and have nothing or whatever. Mm. Um, like, I, I, that's not the actual argument. Like, I think when you actually drill down into what we're actually talking about. And by we, I, I'm not saying like me as part of a degrowth community, I'm saying like people who are critical of this, this model that I think that when you actually look at what's being proposed, that it's not like, you know, we need to, as I was saying, like, it's not here. Shirts, everything. Right? Yeah. 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 It's not like getting rid of everything that we're used to. It's kind of saying like, okay, how is the economy working right now? What are the aspects of the economy that are not working? Um, what elements of that can we, you know, degrow in that way? And then what other parts of the economy do we need to invest more resources in, right? Um, and so is the consumption of like a bunch of useless crap that people just end up throwing out, like, you know, a few months later or whatever, um, is that really stuff that needs to keep occurring? Um, is a lot of this stuff that is really oriented toward like elite consumption and elite uh, convenience, um, really the things that we should be focusing on, or should we be redirecting our resources into the social systems, the care systems, you know, things like that. Um, you know, like I think what we're seeing right now, when we're talking about some of the richest people in the world, often people who are from tech, um, is that they are laying out this future where, you know, we're going to space where we continue to 
consume more and more. You know, you had Aaron Bastani talking about how we should all live as billionaires in fully automated luxury communism. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't see how you do that without like completely destroying the planet and running over on, you know, the, the limits that we have in terms of reducing emissions and things like that, right? Maybe there is a way to grow things and decouple emissions from uh, consumption and, and energy growth and all these sorts of things. Um, but I would say that I think on the, the time scales that we have, we need to seriously think about like how the economy is working, what we're prioritizing, and then what that looks like. I don't know if that's like a great description of uh, <laughs> no, that's how great. I stand on it's, these things. It's, it's but, fast. No, I think we're yeah. probably in a very similar place because I was going to ask about uh, luxury communism as well, because I think that ties in quite, quite closely with this stuff. But the skepticism on that, I think, is important. And the, the decouple growth thing I've always felt was a bit of a, a cop-out answer because it's, I mean, prove it first, right? It's, it's creating this uh, physical, I suppose, relationship and then saying, but if that didn't exist, then everything <laughs> would be fine. It's like, well, yes, you could say that about anything, right? If that wasn't a law of how growth seems to have functioned throughout human society, then yeah, things would be different, but they're not. Like, come back to us when you've done that, you know, and we can talk. Like the example that always gets, without turning this into a conversation about emissions, the example that always gets thrown up these days is the UK. And that just hasn't happened. Like that's been a scam. They have all these ways of measuring things that are, you know, ex excluded from the, the graph. And then they go, oh, look, we, we did it. Say, so, well, no, I mean, France also did it if you count uh, nuclear power as a, as a different thing. And, you know, you can export and import energy. Anyway, without getting into that, it, it, does, it does feel like it's there for an ideological reason rather than a, a scientific one, you know? Yeah, I think that... Um... The other thing we have to be aware of is that uh, green capitalism as a concept exists, right? Um, and we know that also doesn't work um, in, in, in many different ways um, because it's relying on a system of, of structures that in terms of consumption and the way that we currently work as a, as a global society just doesn't drive the outcomes that we seem to need right now. Um, but it's almost become like the the other path, the other um, path of least resistance for, I don't know if you'd say people on the left necessarily, um, but people in that growth, degrowth space without going uh, full, let's shut capitalism down. Yeah, you know, I think it's also interesting to look at um, the visions of the future of these tech billionaires and how they kind of illustrate this question, right? Because you have Elon Musk on one hand, you know, on your on what you're saying about green growth, who talks about how in order to solve the problem of climate change, we don't need to fundamentally change the systems in which we live in. Right. All that we need to do is buy electric cars, put solar panels on our roofs and batteries in our suburban homes. And like that is kind of the solution. We just need to electrify things and then we can continue living as we are living and just power those things by renewables and we're done. Uh, and, you know, I think there's been a lot of work on that that shows that that is completely false. That is not nearly enough, but you know, that is kind of the, uh, the opinion on climate change and on how we fix it by people who are in this elite position. Like we see that's, that's essentially the policy position of uh, the United States government now. Uh, like they are very explicitly pushing electric vehicles. We'll see if that comes to like fruition. Um, but there's not like a significant greater investment in more large scale transformations that you would have to see 
to seriously create the kind of sustainable society that would be necessary to really address yeah, climate change. Right? Private vehicle market or private vehicle lobby is, is so strong that it's not even in the conversation like, hey, just get rid of private vehicles, you know, same same search. Um, no, no, it's it's put a battery in rid of private vehicles. Exactly. And, you know, I, I would link that conversation to, you know, the need for growth, right? The need for the means of consumption that creates the greatest kind of possible economic activity in the sense that if you have everyone taking the bus or riding a bike, that doesn't produce the same amount of profit and economic activity as if everybody is driving a car and, you know, charging it or, or filling it up with gas or whatever, right? Like there's a whole infrastructure around it. It's a big purchase. Um, and yeah, it's just a much bigger um, economic generator. But I would say also, if you go beyond the, the visions of climate change and think about their space visions, I think they are also really instructive about how they're thinking about what is going to be necessary for the capitalist system to continue to work. And Jeff Bezos in particular talks about how we face a choice in the future between stasis and rationing if we remain a species that continues to live on earth, or we can be a species that embraces growth and dynamism if we all move to space. And his particular space vision, he believes that we can't stay on planet earth because we're going to keep um, taking too much resources. And his kind of, uh, the, the guy who inspires him was his old college professor, Gerard O'Neill. And he even wrote that we couldn't colonize Venus because we would use up its resources too quickly. And so we need to actually live in colonies in space, um, move our heavy industry to space. I'm guessing we're getting resources from like asteroids and stuff like that. But like, it's, <laughs> I guess, like, but seriously, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, this is, this is the framing, right? He talks about how we need to, you know, move to space, but also how we need to grow the population to a trillion people living in these space colonies. And that is, like all of these um, ideas are directly connected to the idea that the economy needs to keep growing, that we're going to run out of resources here on earth in order to grow that economy and people to consume if we continue to be, yeah. you know, just a, a single planet species. And so we need to leave earth because that is the only way for the capitalist system to continue operating, to continue growing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all built into these visions. Like it, they're telling you what they think. What's always stunning um, about these uh, extrapolations to me and the way that they're, I guess, analyzed by people who um, adhere to status quo e economic theory um, is how often a, a lens of efficiency or um, around consumerism and, and around what we're producing isn't applied to the current economic, economic system. Because as you've kind mm. of alluded to earlier, like there's a whole bunch of just shit that we make, you know, that, like, but in, instead of thinking about, okay, so how, how do we introduce efficiency? Like we're often talking about in our um, public systems or um, even, you know, startup culture, how do we apply that to the global system so that we're not producing things that we do not need no, no, we need to produce those for some reason um, to like continue like pushing consumption and pushing growth. Um, and there's no other, no other option. Yeah, it brings, us, it brings us full circle, right? To what we were talking about right at the beginning of this podcast, efficiency 
um, the kind of neoliberal assumptions and maximization, blah, 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 because efficiency isn't value neutral, right? That's like something that these tech people won't <laughs> get through their heads is that efficiency comes with assumptions preloaded and those are determined by the society that you're in as we've been talking about this entire time. Like you can't just look at, look at a system in the abstract and say, how do we make this the most efficient without knowing what outputs you want? And therefore it's not about efficiency. It's about prioritization. And as soon as you're doing that, you're you know, lowering some things and increasing other things. And it's going to come back to what you actually want to do in the first place. That wasn't some kind of um, abstract tech future utopia that you're imposing on it. It's your own value judgment, yeah. which is the, fine, but admit that, you know, it's easier to uh, imagine the end I mean, of the galaxy than the end of capitalism. It's not fine uh, <laughs> for one thing, um, because often that um, hidden assumption is we're just moving capital towards capital, right? Um, like that is the outcome that the, the Bezos is, the, the Musks, the Gates of the world want is to accrue. Um, and, and that's the, the kind of hidden premise to increase growth. That's the system that's working in the background is yeah. we're going to move all of this productive capacity and all of this um, resource upwards. Um, and that's happening in the background. Like it's not, it's clear an outcome in terms of these people become billionaires or, or trillionaires or whatever, but it's not clear in how the system operates to do that necessarily. Yeah, you know, and I think what might put a good like pin in that kind of conversation and, and kind of builds on what you're both saying there um, is I think Aaron Beninov had a really good book last year called Automation in the Future of Work. That was in part like a response to this kind of, you know, fully automated luxury communism kind of view on the left um, about, you know, kind of embracing this approach of these like tech billionaires essentially and saying that you know, it's all kind of good, but we just need communism instead of capitalism. Like, you know, this kind of um, incorrect view, I would say. But in Beninov's book, he essentially, you know, addresses that point that you're talking about, right? About the need to think about what we're prioritizing and what we're producing um, and the real values that are within the system. And he talks about how, you know, these ideas that automation was going to eradicate all of these jobs back from like 2015 or whatever, you know, the narratives that we were hearing around that time were completely false, but that we can make use of technology in a positive way to plan the economy. But what we need is like, you know, guiding principles and guiding paradigms to define that system instead of just having it guided by efficiency and growth and these things that are guiding the ways that we think about the tech, the economy right now. And, you know, also the technologies that are core to um, driving the current uh, economy. And so, yeah, you know, I think, I think that Beninov's argument for me was a really good one when we think about what do we actually want the future to look like? What do we think is a realistic future? Um, especially if we don't think that these like tech billionaires and these fully automated luxury communists are offering it. And how do we actually create a system that uses technology in a positive way, but also thinks about, you know, the kind of society that we want to live in and, and puts that question first, right? Like, how do we want to live? Yeah. Not what will technology allow us to do? Um, and so I think that that is kind of the core question. It's something that we've been talking about, uh, I guess, for almost three years now, Philip, on the podcast is what is the outcome? What, what, what are you driving towards? Um, mm. And my, my general thoughts on, like, if we're extrapolating out and out and out, I think it's just a useful thought experiment. Um, 
under the current system, we just end up being the bad guys. You know, we end up like every every um, sci-fi you've ever read or consumed in media, where there's one giant tech race who goes and just destroys planets um, <laughs> and like just wipes out whole whole uh, species. That's us at the moment. Like that's the only like viable extrapolation of our current system. And we have to like <laughs> something has to change there if we don't want to be that. Yeah, you know, I would say a good um, science fictional response to that kind of common narrative, I would say, is like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, which yeah. is a book that I love, that mm. kind of puts uh, an anarchist society in contrast with a capitalist society and, you know, kind of compares the way that those two different societies kind of live, kind of the values that are embedded within them. And, you know, I think while we wouldn't say that we want to live exactly like her anarchist society is is living i think it it illustrates both how societies and economies can work differently if they are organized around different principles um but i also think that if we're thinking about the narratives and the stories that we tell it also shows that you know we can tell stories and we can have stories that imagine the way that things work in a very different way and i think that also serve to open people's minds to what is actually possible um, instead of just, you know, having these stories that are within the system that says everything is shit, that things are just going to get worse. Uh, and so, yeah, I think Le Guin's work, that book in particular, but Le Guin's broader work, I would say is really good for that. Yeah. I think um, that just about wraps us up. That has put a pin in it. Um, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us today, Paris. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I'm glad. I'm glad. Hey, if people want to find your work um, or uh, follow you online, where can they do that? Totally. You know, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Paris Marks. You can follow my podcast at Tech Won't Save Us. Or, you know, you can find Tech Won't Save Us on any podcast platform. And I would say, you know, maybe someday I will make it back down there to New Zealand with you. Um, <laughs> but for now, you know, I'm happy to respect the border measures and not try to force my way in there like Larry Page and his <laughs> Can't hey, wait. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this, yeah, go, go follow Paris uh, at the um, handles mentioned. Uh, hit us up on 102.nz for all our different social and our articles. Um, and uh, hit that subscribe. We'll, we'll be bringing you uh, more stuff next week. Catch you later. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism.